Well, this evening we want to consider God's Word as it comes to us again. Uh, This time we'll be considering the Second Commandment, and our Scripture reading this evening will come to us from the book of Leviticus, specifically Leviticus chapter 10 this evening. But I'm going to add a few verses here. We're going to begin our reading in Leviticus chapter 9, verse 22, all the way to the end of the chapter of Leviticus chapter 10. And then we're going to go to the Gospel of John. And we're going to look at one verse from John chapter 4. But our first Scripture reading will come to us from Leviticus chapter 9, beginning in verse 22. Leviticus chapter 9, verse 22. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word this evening. Leviticus 9, verse 22. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from the offering, from offering, excuse me, the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat upon the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishal and Azalphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from out, from out front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. And so they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not care, tear your clothes, lest you die. And wrath come upon all the congregation, but let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink. You or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Moses spoke to Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar, his surviving sons. Take the grain offering that is left on the Lord's food offerings and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place because it is your due and your son's due from the Lord's food offering. So I am commanded. But the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, you shall eat in a clean place, you and your son and your daughters with you. For they are given as your due and your son's due from the sacrifice of the peace peace offerings of the people of Israel. The thigh that is contributed and the breast that is waved, they shall bring with the food offerings of the fat pieces to wave for a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be yours and your sons with you as a due forever as the Lord has commanded. 
Now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burned up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary? Since it is a thing most holy and has been given to you, that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement of them before the Lord. Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they have offered their sin offerings and their burnt offerings before the Lord, and yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. And then we'll turn in our Bibles one additional verse from John chapter 4. So we'll turn to the fourth gospel. John chapter 4, Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman. And in verse 24, he instructs her as to worship that is pleasing to God. John chapter 4, verse 24 says this, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Here ends the reading of God's word this evening. And then we'll turn in our Heidelberg Catechisms to Lord's Day 35, which can be found in the pew in front of you in the Forms and Prayers book. Lord's Day 35. On page 243. Together we read, beginning with question 96, what is God's will for us in the second commandment? That we in no way make any image of God, nor worship Him in any other way than has been commanded in God's Word. May we then not make any image at all? God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Although creatures may be portrayed, yet God forbids making or having such images in order to worship them or serve God through them. But may not images as books for the unlearned be permitted in churches? No, we should not try to be wiser than God. He wants the Christian community instructed by the living preaching of His Word, not by idols that cannot even talk. Well, my brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, tonight we return to our evening service, which we have titled, Living for God to study the second commandment. The Heidelberg Catechism, if you flip one page over, in question 92, reminds us that the second commandment says, you shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. Notice that both the first commandment and the second commandment are both about worship. But if the first commandment is about worshiping the wrong God, the second commandment is about worshiping the right God the wrong way. 
My favorite book of the Old Testament, whether you believe it or not, is the book of Leviticus. We could think this evening as the book of Leviticus as the worship manual of the Old Testament church. And the reason that a lot of people might skip this book in their devotions or in family devotions, or their eyes glaze over while Moses is speaking of the blood and the tabernacle and the animals, is because we haven't yet seen the drama of this book. And I want to tell you this evening that Leviticus is part of the drama of the Old Testament. Nestled in between those epic books of Genesis and Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, Leviticus actually is the center. Some would say it's even the summit. It is the height of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Because it teaches us how to worship the Lord. Now don't look at me like I'm crazy this evening. My Old Testament professor put me on to this. And scholars agree that Leviticus answers the fundamental question that has perplexed humanity since the beginning. How do we get back to Eden? How do we, sinful people, get to a place where there's no more pain? How do we get to a place where there's no more division? No more suffering? Peace with man and with God? We're all looking for it. Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, rich or poor, we all want peace. We want paradise again. God answers this question in the book of Leviticus. And the way back to Eden, the way back into God's presence and peace between man and God, He says, is through the ministry. It's through His priests. It's through His sacrifices. And He gives His people a slice of heaven on earth and fellowship with God again. It is difficult to communicate how important of a moment Leviticus 9 is. That the people who were banished from God's presence, who offended Him, Sinful though we are, we read in Leviticus 9, have fellowship with God again. They shout. They fall on their faces, which is the equivalent of hallelujah. Praise God. This is why Leviticus is so important. God has opened a way to be in His presence again by way of the shedding of blood. But we rev- what all is not well in the camp, is it? We read in Leviticus 10 that true religion is not just about worshiping the right God, but we need to worship God the right way. 
God wants His people to worship in spirit and in truth. And just less than 24 hours after that first sacrifice, after the way is opened for God's people to be in God's presence again, Nadab and Abihu receive God's quick and severe judgment for violating the second commandment. And so that's what we want to look at together this evening. And I want to tweak our theme a little bit from the bulletin, but the theme is this. Worship the living God alone by the living Word alone. Worship the living God alone by His living Word alone. We want to see this in three points. Self-willed worship. There is no one like Him. And then God-pleasing worship. So first, we want to see self-willed worship. Now the second commandment speaks about physical idols, but most generally, what it's describing is self-willed worship. Self-willed worship is when we come into the presence of God and we worship Him according to our ideas, our wills, our notions, rather than, as the Catechism says, is commanded in God's Word. Now when people hear this doctrine, oftentimes they think, well, you're saying worship should be boring. But go back and read the instructions of the tabernacle. This is the farthest thing from boring. Covered in gold, the mercy seat, the presence of God, sacrifices, bronze altars. Worship was supposed to be beautiful and is supposed to be beautiful. God appeals to our ears in the singing and the preaching. God appeals to our eyes when we look around and see the fellowship of believers. He appeals to our senses of taste and touch in the sacraments. But too much of worship can become about satisfying our flesh, satisfying our wills, rather than the glory of God. Leviticus teaches us that God cares about how we worship Him. Did you notice in our Scripture reading, there are three types of fire. Notice this this evening. Three types of fire. In order to get the sense of the passage, we needed to look at Leviticus 9. Where we see the fire of acceptance. Aaron offers the first sin offering in Leviticus 9, verse 22. The first burnt offering. The first peace offering. And the only question is, will God accept it? We read that all the people of Israel gather around. And in verse 23, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Now, fire from heaven can indicate divine judgment. Remember in Genesis 19, fire from heaven fell on Sodom and Gomorrah for their sinful ways. But fire can also indicate divine salvation. In Exodus 13, as they were being led out of Egypt, God led them by a pillar of fire from heaven. But in this instance, the fire from heaven indicates God's divine acceptance. What's happening here 
is that heaven and earth are crashing together. This is a divine sign. God approves the work of Moses. He approves of the work of the priests and of Aaron and his sons. And sinful man and holy God are dwelling together in the wilderness. It's not Eden, but they're getting close. We see this later in the Old Testament as fire falls from heaven in the temple's dedication. Solomon gives all these sacrifices and again, fire falls from heaven. Think of Elijah on Mount Carmel. Again, fire falls from heaven. It's God's divine sign that He approves of the work of His ministers. Now, lest there be any confusion this evening as to why God accepted this sacrifice, flip with me to Leviticus chapter 8, where God actually makes it quite clear. When Aaron and his sons are being consecrated, we read over and over again, there's this constant refrain, that Moses and Aaron did exactly as the Lord God commanded them. Leviticus 8 verse 4 says, just as the Lord commanded him. Leviticus 8, verse 5, just as the Lord commanded him. Leviticus 8, verse 9, just as the Lord commanded him. Verse 13, just as the Lord commanded him. And so on. God accepts the work of Moses. He accepts the sacrifice of Aaron because they were following, they were doing what God commanded in His Word. Let it be known this evening that those who serve a holy God, must obey what He says promptly and fully. But in our passage, we are introduced to two characters. Verse 10, if any pregnant ladies are looking for new Bible names, Nadab and Abihu. We read that they are sons of Aaron the eldest of Aaron's four sons, which meant they were priests of the highest order. They would have been included in that ordination service in Leviticus 9. They are clothed in priestly garments. They are anointed with that ordination oil. And in chapter 10, the first act of their ministry, we read that each took his censer and put incense into it. Now, a censer would have been what would have looked like a golden bowl with chains on it in which they would put incense and a coal on top of it, and they would walk into the tabernacle, into the presence of God, and that coal would burn the incense and it would create a pleasing smell and a fragrance and a smoke before the Lord. It's their first day on the job. Seems like everything's going well, right? Look at verse 1. And offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Now what does that mean? It doesn't actually give us that much detail. Some have speculated, Andrew Bonner notes, that maybe they were offering it at the wrong time since the high priest didn't tell them to do this. Maybe it was in the wrong place because we see later that they had to take them out of the outer court, their bodies. 
Maybe it was the wrong manner. They took the coal from elsewhere instead of from the altar, which we read is supposed to be done. See, we want to know, what is this unauthorized fire? But the Bible doesn't tell us. Instead, the stress of the sentence is on this phrase, which He had not commanded them. In other words, the second commandment. What they're doing is will worship. That whatever this unauthorized fire was, we don't know, it originated in the will of Nadab and Abihu, not the will of God Almighty. They sought to draw near to God by their own thoughts and according to their own notions. That's the second fire. But there is a third fire. The book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, That our God is a consuming fire. And the same fire that came down from heaven in Leviticus 9 and consumed the offering, we read, shoots out over the tabernacle. Over the mercy seat. And consumes Nadab and Abihu. And they died before the Lord. If the first fire was one of divine acceptance, the third fire is one of divine rejection. And the fact that it's divine is shown to us in verse 5. It says they had to carry them out by their coats. That the bodies were destroyed, but God's priestly robes were not. Divine rejection. Like Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah. Now when I was a young boy, it was fairly common in Canada to have wood stoves. Do you guys still have wood stoves down here? Uh, In Canada, they're becoming increasingly regulated out. And so it's challenging to get one. And so I learned a lot about fire growing up with a wood stove. Parents, I'm assuming that you have to instruct your children often uh, to be careful with this. Fire is a dangerous thing. Fire needs to be kept in the wood stove, kept in the fire pit. To bring it out of the fire pit would be to destroy your home and possibly you. Fire is dangerous. And here's the principle this evening. So is God. God is dangerous. He is holy. We sang earlier this evening, with with shame and consternation, as haters haughty though they be, shall at His august presence flee in utter desolation, for Jehovah shall appear and He shall consume all far and near. This isn't Santa Claus, folks. Or your grandpa. Holy, thrice holy, triune God. And the spirit of the second commandment says, if we are going to come into God's presence, we need to worship His way, not our way. We are not to worship according to what we think is right 
but according to what holy God thinks is right. But let's be honest here. A lot of worship these days is appealing to our flesh. But he who would serve God to his own liking doesn't serve God, but serves himself. People don't want to hear this anymore, but this is exactly what Paul says in Colossians. He says that there are those who have an appearance of wisdom in promoting their asceticism and their different styles of worship, but Paul says it's will religion. It's a self-willed religion. Colossians 2, verse 23. We are not to worship according to our likeness or our fancy, but are to worship according to God's Word. One commentator says it this way, a word of application. We are to worship God in His way, not our own. It is not we who determine that what worship is but God. He tells us that we are to worship Him and Him only, the first commandment, but He also tells us in the second commandment how to worship Him. In the worship of God, nothing is to be left according to our likeness or arbitrariness. I didn't know that was a word, but apparently it is. Everything we do in worship must be based on God's Word. So for example, why do we practice communion? Because the Word of God compels us. Why do you baptize believers and their children? Because the Word of God compels us. Why do you read your Bible? Why do you preach? Why do you sing hymns and worship? Because the Word of God compels us. This is a very radical idea in our culture. Because the majority of churches don't operate by this principle. The majority of churches in our day operate instead like this. Whatever is not forbidden is permissible instead of what God has commanded. But this leads to abuse. The teaching, this teaching leads to a church style that is totally man-centered rather than word-centered. Rather than God-centered. Rather than Jesus-centered. Jesus wants worshipers, He tells us in John 4, who worship in spirit and truth. So if you're going to leave our church one day, maybe to move up north, move down south, look for a church that is not just a truth-teaching church, but is a worshiping in truth church. Because the church of God is not to be dedicated to their innovations or fancies, but dedicated to His Word alone. Now, is there anyone here this evening who's reading Leviticus 10 and saying, what is going on? People have a hard time with this chapter. What if there was a good reason for Nadab and Abihu's actions? What if a line of communication got crossed and they offered it at the wrong time? What if they brought, for some good reason, a coal from their fire instead of the altar? And people struggle with this just like they struggle with Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6 who when the Ark of the Covenant was falling over, he puts his hand up to protect it and the Lord strikes him dead. We can be like David 
mad with God for taking Nadab and Abihu's life and taking Uzzah's life. But what this passage is stressing again is that God is holy. We just sang the hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty. And congregation, you sing it well. We love this hymn here. But it reveals a hard truth. That God is too much for us to bear. There is no one like Him. Separate from sin. Overwhelming in power. Totally majestic. He is holy. And the holiness of God is never to be trifled with. This is powerfully expressed in verse 3. Among those who are near Me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. That when we come into God's presence, it is all about His holiness. And so Aaron in verse 3, after his two eldest sons are killed, we read, holds his peace. How does he do that? Because look what God says. They can still draw near. This phrase is often used through the book of Leviticus to describe the priestly work. And think about what just happened. Nadab and Abihu's first action as priests in the Old Testament the first offering they made, and they completely botched it. Wouldn't God have been fair to say, that's it, no more priests, no more tabernacle, we're done. Go back to Egypt. But Aaron holds his peace because a life in the presence of God, or a life without the presence of God, is actually worse than death. God is teaching us a lesson. That the Lord hates everything that detracts from His holiness and glory. As uncomfortable as it is, He will always glorify Himself, whether it be in our salvation or our damnation. He is holy. We see this in the second commandment when it says um, that He will punish children for the iniquity of the parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who reject Me. That is, not speaking about generational curses or hexes, but that God is holy. There are no exemptions. We can't say, my dad made me do this. So exempt me. No, God takes sin seriously. But there is a promise greater than the judgment. He extends His mercy to thousands of those who love me. See, even in the judgment of Nadab and Abihu, Leviticus is still the height of the Pentateuch. Yes, God consumes Nadab and Abihu. And the people witness His terrible holiness. But they also learn through this fire of acceptance that God is good. That He takes sin seriously, but He is willing to forgive. 
they looked through the mirror dimly, and every time someone drew near with a sacrifice, they only saw it vaguely. But God is upholding here both His holiness, yes, but also His grace. You see, all of us in this room deserve to be consumed with fire for our disobedience. For things we've said, things we've done, not sanctifying God's name. God doesn't put aside this penalty, but in order for us to come into presence, His presence, He exacts it. He pours it out. And oh, the amazing love of God that He does this at the cross. That Jesus lived a perfect life. He lived the holy life. He was the only priest allowed to be in the presence of God by His own right, but instead He bears the fire of God's holiness. The Son is consumed so that we can be forgiven, so that you and I can draw near to God. What God is then is holy. He is gracious. He is love. He is mercy. He is all of these attributes in one God. And what that means is that there is no such thing as a picture of Him. He cannot be visibly portrayed. What did we read in John 4? He doesn't have a body. God is spirit. And so when the Bible describes God, it doesn't describe His body, although sometimes there is what we call an anthropomorphism, which means that He has hands or feet or arms or eyes, but really it's just using it as a figure of speech. But when the Bible wants to describe God, it describes Him by His attributes. God is love. He is long-suffering. He is merciful. He is full of grace and truth. He is an invisible God. And one of the strange fires that people often bring into the worship of God is when we try to make the invisible God visible. Now, I'm not saying that I think the catechism here, or I'm not sure I should say, that the catechism here is saying that we cannot have art or a beautiful sanctuary like we do. Or that we can't have a cross like they said in the Netherlands. Uh, back in the day, they used to say you shouldn't have a cross at the front of the church. And so if you go to some of our churches back home in the Netherlands, they'll have a rooster on the top of the church, not a cross. That's where this idea comes from. But your sinus, the author of the catechism, doesn't actually go that far. He doesn't say you can have you can't have art or religious symbols. He says you cannot have religious symbols and treat them as if they have religious power. The problem is is that as humans that's what we do. We often take an image and give it religious power. At least in our hearts. I'll give you one example. When I was a young man in the Methodist church I went to, one Easter service, the pastor was giving a message on the Gospel, and they raised a cross in the worship service. It was laying on the floor and somebody pulled it up. 
And then there it is, standing in front of us. And the pastor invited us to come to the front of the church and to lay our hands upon the cross and to pray and to confess our sins and um, speak to the cross, I guess, as if it were Christ and confess our sins upon it. And at the time, I went up. I was crying, thankful for the cross that Easter Sunday and thankful for Christ's sacrifice. But here we have something standing in for God. And as human beings, we assign religious significance to it. And so then the story goes that one day my father is in the church's garage, helping somebody move something, and he kicks something with his foot and looks down, and what is it? It was that cross. And all of a sudden, all those emotions are there. Here he is thinking of the confession of sin and Christ's sacrifice, and he's thinking of this cross that it shouldn't be on the ground. The catechism is rightly drawing attention to the fact that we assign religious value to things that are meaningful to us. We can often fall into the trap of of Exodus 32, where we're just saying, it's not that we're worshiping the golden calf, it just represents Yahweh. But the catechism is reminding us that the Christian faith is not one of seeing. The Christian faith is one of hearing. The Apostle Paul says, faith comes by hearing. God is invisible. And He has chosen to reveal Himself by the living reading and the preaching of the Word of God. Christian worship is to be based on the Word. If God wanted us to see Him in worship, He would have given us a picture, not a book. Reformed worship, Christian worship, is Word-centered worship. Because God is holy. Because God is good. He is love. He is mercy. He is peace. He is grace. And there is no picture of these things. It's interesting that in verse 9 of Leviticus 10, suddenly amidst the chaos, Moses gives an instruction on drunkenness. Some have suggested here that possibly Nadab and Abihu were drunk when they came into the presence of God. But I think there is something deeper than this. Remember that here, the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians, not to be filled with wine, but to be filled with the Spirit. That when we are to come into the presence of God, we need to be filled with the Spirit of God, not with any other thing. Israel was a nation of priests. Let us never forget that we are to be filled with God's Spirit, not with drunkenness. Now, the rest of Leviticus 10 is about dealing with the fallout of Nadab and Abihu's death. But the dominant theme of Leviticus 10 is not one of judgment, but one of mercy. In the first act of the priesthood, remember, they had completely and utterly botched it. We couldn't blame God if He decided decided to throw the whole program out. But remember, mercy is giving compassion even when it's within your power to punish someone. And that's exactly what God does. Instead of casting them out, 
What God does in Leviticus 10 is he draws them in. He draws them closer. He doesn't throw out the priesthood. He wants to dwell with Israel. And the only way this would happen is if the priests get their act together. So according to the purification laws, God tells them, take the bodies out. He tells them, you can't mourn. And at first, this seems very cruel, but you have to remember that Israel had to come through the priests. They had to come through the sprinkling of blood. If they are in mourning, they can't do that. God isn't saying that they can't mourn, but during their service in the tabernacle, the people must come. They must bring their offerings. He is holding up, even in the tragedy of Nadab and Abihu's death, this principle, worship in spirit and truth. But what we see is that they come oh so close to tragedy again. Verse 17, Moses says, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary? It is a thing most holy and has been given to you that you would bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord. You can hear Moses cringing in this verse. You're not following the instructions again. They botched it again. Is God going to take now Eleazar and Ithamar as well? Is there going to be no priests now? No people who can worship the Lord? But Aaron says, hey, hey, it's just an accident. It's not willful rebellion. We could understand if they didn't eat the offering. They didn't have much of an appetite after seeing Nadab and Abihu's death. But it's almost comical how bad they're doing. This is their first day on the job. Failure after failure. Try as they may, their hearts just aren't perfect. And neither are ours. See, God-pleasing worship is by the Word, but it must be through the sprinkling of blood. we need to make sure we appeal to the perfect sacrifice. Even on Sunday, when we're struggling to focus, when we have wrong motives and impure thoughts, let us be reminded that it is the sacrifice that makes our worship perfect before God. It is the sacrifice that makes our prayers ascend unto heaven. It is the sacrifice that sanctifies our singing. As as I said already, we come through doorposts stained with blood. The blood of Christ. Let it be known this evening, you can only worship God truly by faith alone in Jesus Christ. His life is the flawless portrait of someone who lived according to God's commands and who by His death paid the full sacrifice of sins. He has ascended into heaven. He is sanctifying us by His Spirit. He is renewing us in His image in true righteousness and holiness. Jesus calls us to worship in spirit and also to worship in truth. Let us worship according, worship the one true God by the living Word of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word which is not only faithful to instruct us, 
who the one true God is, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but You also are faithful to instruct us as to how we are to worship You. To come to You in that spirit, that freedom, that liberation that we have from the way of old, but are also called to worship You according to Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that we do come through those doorposts stained with blood and that You make our worship perfect. And we ask, God, that You would sanctify even this evening's hour of worship, that it would be a pleasing fragrance to You, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.